more time. Good morning. Uh, Rich and Kelly are not here today, so I am in charge of medical grand rounds. I will be taking requests for support staff uh, later in the day. Um, <laughs> It is a pleasure to introduce this morning's Medical Grand Round speaker, and I acknowledge the topic is a little bit different than what we often talk about in Medical Grand Rounds, but as the organization is thinking about sort of embarking on more comprehensive approaches to neurovascular disease, and particularly in the critical care area, um, I felt like this was an appropriate topic and an appropriate speaker. Um, it is a pleasure to introduce Dr. Evie Marcolini. Um, she was... Um, gr grew up in Chicago and initially tried a career in banking but found that not to be to her liking, so then moved to Maine, as I think all failed bankers should, and um, discovered both a love of um, wilderness medicine as part of her uh, work with Outward Bound and met her future husband at the time, who's joining us as a guest in the back of the room. Um, she then decided to go to medical school where she went to the University of Vermont and then did her residency in emergency medicine at Maine Medical Center. Um, after that, she went to one of the premier institutions for critical care training, went to shock trauma in Maryland, where she stayed on initially as a faculty member before transitioning her career to Yale, where she is currently an assistant professor of emergency medicine and critical care. Um, her interest really is in neurocritical care and the interface between neurocritical care and emergency medicine, and she has given talks on the topic both nationally and internationally, and it is a pleasure to welcome you this morning. Before I give her her due round of applause, I meant to tell our visiting guests from elsewhere that the code for this morning's activity is G9QN. G9QN. You have... I knew it. <laughs> Somebody had to say something. <laughs> so without further ado, please welcome Evie Marcolini. Thank you very much. I'd like to really thank, um, thank you and Dr. Gill both for inviting me here. It's a great honor to be here at Dartmouth and to speak with you. And it's especially fun to be here on graduation weekend. I don't know if you've all been downtown, um, but it's, it's quite the buzz and uh, a lot of fun. In my clinical practice, I get to see stroke patients from the pre-hospital critical care to the emergency department to the neuro ICU. So I'm either overseeing or managing or taking care of stroke patients for most of their hospital stay. And what I've seen in the past seven years that I've been at Yale is a growth of our program. When I first got there, we did not have a dedicated neuro ICU. And I went there to work in the surgical ICU and they said, would you like to help us dedicate a neuro ICU? So I said, sure, why not? I had done some neurotrauma at shock trauma. And what we did was build it from practically nothing to now I am one of six neurointensivists, and we manage a 14-bed unit, and we're oftentimes spilling into other units with our patients. We now have a neurocritical care fellowship. We're graduating our fourth fellow this year, this week. We have a stroke fellowship. We've built the stroke program into uh, the point where we are now a comprehensive stroke center. And most importantly, I've seen the care of the patients from EMS to the emergency department to the ICU to the floor and then going beyond. Some of these patients really get an amazing type of care. 
And the two patients I'm going to tell you about this morning are patients that I think exemplify really good integrated stroke care that couldn't be done at some of our outlying facilities where they may not even have MRI capability. They certainly don't have neurology capability or neurosurgery capability. And we know stroke is very time sensitive. And hopefully I'll show you with these two cases some interesting medicine as well as some of the benefits of an integrated system. So let's get started. I have no disclosures. And I want to tell you about the first case. This is a patient that I saw not too long ago. He's a 23-year-old guy. He lives at home. He's graduated from college. He lives at home. He's working overnights. And he got up in the early evening to get something to eat and then get ready to go to work. So he's fishing around in the refrigerator, and he found some old turkey. He made a turkey sandwich. Then he went to take a shower and get ready to go to work. And around 8 o'clock at night, while he was in the shower, he got really dizzy. Sudden onset dizziness, nausea, he threw up. And even trying to get out of the shower, he could barely walk without holding on to the walls. So his mother saw this and um, called EMS. And EMS brought him to our hospital. When he got there, the ED team evaluated him, and they did a neuro exam. His neuro exam was normal. They sent some labs, they started some fluid, treated his nausea, ordered a CT and a CTA. So this is 8 o'clock. And at 11 o'clock, he hadn't had a CT yet, but they had to sign out to the next team. And the next team said, did you guys think about stroke with this patient? And they said, no, he's... 23 years old, he's otherwise healthy, he's got no risk factors, no family history, he's so young, this is really very unlikely to be stroke. But we did order a CT and a CTA. Hang on to that thought. So the next team came on, went to see the patient, did their own neuro exam, it was normal. He was still nauseated, he was still vomiting somewhat, by now he's, he's about retching, he doesn't have much left. And the prevailing theory was that it was the turkey sandwich. I mean, that's the red herring he came in with. And so they watched him, and then at midnight, he went and got his CT. Came back, the read was negative. He's not dizzy anymore. By the time he comes in, he's not dizzy. He never had a headache, although he says in the past few days, he's had a few headaches, intermittent, nothing really to speak of. He's still nauseated and they're treating the emesis, the, the uh, nausea, and they're still giving him fluid. And they consulted neuro. So by 2.30, neurology had come down. They saw him. They looked at the imaging. They did a full neuro exam. And they said, we think it's the turkey sandwich. There's nothing neurologic here. You can send him home. So our team said, oh, we're not so comfortable with that. We're going to admit him. And, of course, it had to admit him to medicine. So he's waiting for a medicine bed. And by about, what time, 3.50, almost 4 in the morning, his symptoms completely resolve. So now he's fine. Mom's in the department with him still. And the nurse came and said, 
the patient's fine now. No symptoms at all. Nausea's gone, no vomiting. He can even walk. And so our attending said, well, yeah, I need to see this. So went to the room, did another full neuro exam. This guy had about six neuro exams in the whole time he was in the emergency department. And sure enough, his neuro exam is normal. <coughs> and then she said, okay, I want to see you walk. And he walked completely fine. She said, I- I'm still going to keep you. And they were okay with that. So he said, fine. Mom went home. He went to sleep. And he slept for a couple of hours until at one point the nurse heard the call alarm and went in the room and he had hemiplegia on the left side, slurred speech, and um, ptosis. So now he's clearly got stroke signs. So they immediately called a stroke alert. Now, in our hospital, calling a stroke alert gets you a stroke fellow, a stroke attending, and depending on the time, that attending will come in from home or will be on campus. Radiology clears the decks for the CT and the MRI immediately. You get a neurology resident and, of course, the emergency medicine team, if it's in the emergency department. Now, we call stroke alerts in the rest of the hospital, too. So wherever the stroke alert is called, that's the team you get. And you also get an interventionalist, which at our shop is either neurosurgery or we have one radiology neurointerventionalist. So everybody is on deck, and interventionalist is ready to head in if they're not already there. So that's what they got, and they sent him immediately to CAT scan. Went to CAT scan, and we see this. Happily, he's got no blood, but he's got this... Basilar hyperdensity, which could be a thrombus, especially in the setting of his clinical picture, but it could also be contrast from that study that we got at midnight. (coughs) Unclear what it is. So in talking to radiology and to the stroke attending who was on his way in, they decided to get an MRI, which is easy to do in our shop. So they ordered TPA and sent him to MRI simultaneously. So to get MRI at our shop, it's about maybe a 10-minute transport to another tower, but the MRI is quick. It's hyperacute MRI, and remember, when you call a stroke alert, the decks are cleared, so we get right in. So he goes to MRI, and what we find is that he's got stroke. He's got stroke in both the brainstem and the right cerebellum. So this this is pretty disturbing. Young guy, 23 years old, and he's now, he's now got a stroke. Isn't it a good thing we didn't send him home because he had a bad turkey sandwich? But posterior strokes are so difficult, and we miss them frequently, way too frequently. So they gave him TPA. He ended up getting TPA less than an hour after his initial symptoms. So remember, he came in with the symptoms at 8 o'clock. Then he completely cleared, and for two hours or so, he's got no symptoms at all, documented by a full neuro exam, seeing him walk. So when these symptoms showed up of the hemiplegia, they reset the clock, so now he's in the window for TPA. So he gets TPA. Then they took him right to the angio suite. Because remember, neurosurgery had been heading in, and they they knew and thought that he had this basilar artery thrombus. 
and we had evidence of stroke. So they took him, they cleared his basilar artery, they did find clot, and after that, his symptoms went away. So that's a good ending of this story and a very close call in a young, otherwise healthy patient. These are the things that scare me. One of the things that if we look back at this case and say, what about this? When he was in the department with nausea, vomiting, ataxia, if we're thinking of a posterior stroke and we get a CT because we're thinking of posterior stroke, is that good enough? And I see heads nodding in the back. Absolutely, that is not good enough. So we know, and this is a different patient, we know that a CT is not going to evaluate for posterior stroke. This is a guy who had some dizziness and ataxia, and they got a CT, and you can see it looks perfectly normal. At the same time, or in a you know, very similar time frame, they got an MRI and saw that he's got a very distinct right cerebellar stroke. This is one thing we need to remember. If you're thinking of a posterior stroke, which we should be in anybody who's got nausea, vomiting, ataxia, CT is not good enough. It needs to be followed with something else. And we'll talk more about that. When I think of these weak and dizzy patients, and I know we get weak and dizzy patients, and in the emergency department, nobody likes to pick up that chart. It's the 85-year-old, weak and dizzy, oh boy. It's a, it's a big differential, and it, you know, patients oftentimes will be ambiguous. It's hard to differentiate. This is what I like to do. I like to think about the vestibular syndrome. So if you think about weak, dizzy, room spinning, lightheaded, nausea, ataxia, I just don't feel right, all of those fit into a classification called vestibular syndromes. And these three are the most common vestibular syndromes. So if I take that patient and try to fit him or her into one of these three vestibular syndromes, I, it will then help me not to miss the posterior stroke. And here's how it works. There's the triggered vestibular syndrome, the episodic vestibular syndrome, and the acute vestibular syndrome. So triggered vestibular syndrome means there was a sudden onset of symptoms. It happened at a certain point in time, and there is something that triggers it. Classically, it would be head movement down or up, or standing up from sitting, or standing up from lying. And that symptom goes away when you're not getting the trigger. So there's a period in between the triggering that it goes away. The classic is benign peripheral paroxysmal vertigo or orthostatic hypotension. There's many other, but these are the two classics. Importantly, in between the trigger, the symptoms go away. Episodic vestibular syndrome is that syndrome that happens randomly. It can be triggered or not. Sometimes it just comes on. It's self-limited, goes away on its own. And by the time we see the patient in the emergency department, the symptoms are gone, but they want to know what happened. Classically, this will be panic attack or an arrhythmia, and we have to think about TIA with these patients. The acute vestibular syndrome is where the posterior stroke hides. 
And the difference between acute and triggered, they both have an onset at a certain point in time, but in the acute vestibular syndrome, the symptoms do not go away. They continue. They may be worsened by head movement or something else, but they don't go away. So if you have somebody with acute vestibular syndrome, you're thinking of either something that's peripheral, vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis, but you also need to think about the posterior stroke. So if we took our patient, this 23-year-old guy, who got dizzy while he was in the shower and came in, and, and think about his story, he fits into the acute vestibular syndrome. And the best way to evaluate these patients is to use something called the HINTS exam. Now, the HINTS exam was shown to us by David Newman Toker. And in 2009, he wrote this, this paper talking about a study he did. Using the HINTS exam, it's more sensitive than MRI in looking for acute ischemic stroke in the first 48 hours. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. My exam, doing a HINTS exam, is better than MRI in the first 48 hours. But he showed it, and it's a very useful tool. Now, caveat with this. The folks who did the exams in his study were neuro-ophthalmologists. <laughs> but I think we can use this, and, and I do use this. It takes practice, and it takes understanding. And I'm going to go over it just, just briefly to introduce it. But I would recommend looking at it and using it. Now, in some of our outlying hospitals, we don't have MRI. We, we, we don't have the availability of that, and we'd have to ship somebody. So the HINTS exam is something that we can use to help our diagnosis. So HINTS stands for HI is head impulse testing. And that's what this is. And then the N is nystagmus, and the TS is test of skew. So the head impulse testing works like this. You ask the patient to look right at your nose, and you're, you're cradling his head and you're moving it back and forth, to the right, to the left. He has to look right at your nose. If when you move his head to one side, his eyes go to that side and then have a corrective saccade back to center, that's the bottom panel. That's the positive test. And that tells you there's something peripheral going on. If he continues looking right at your nose, even when you move his head, it tells you there's no peripheral problem, which is bad because that indicates it's a central problem. So that's the first part of the test. There's some really good YouTube videos online if you want to look at this and, and see more of it. The second part is nystagmus. And my message with nystagmus is we need to look at it. We need to look at it at every patient so that we get comfortable seeing nystagmus and seeing what patients' eyes do when we ask them to follow our fingers back and forth. These three types of nystagmus are concerning for central problems. And the third part is the simplest. It's the test of skew. And what you do for this is you cover one eye, and then you uncover it. And you're looking at that eye that you just uncovered. Again, the patient is looking right at your nose. So when you uncover, if his eye is hypertropic or hypotropic, and it corrects to midline, that's a positive test of skew. If he continues just looking straight at you, there's nothing. So if you have a positive test of skew, it's only 30% sensitive. But if you see it, it's actually 98% specific for some kind of a brainstem lesion. 
So when you put these three things together, head impulse test, nystagmus, and test of skew, that's the HINTS exam. And that's what David Newman Toker is saying is more sensitive than MRI. So this is a tool we can use when we see somebody with acute vestibular syndrome. It's important not to use this test with somebody who has triggered vestibular syndrome because then you'll have a normal uh, vestibular ocular reflex and you'll think something's going on, but they really don't have that. So go through this and read that paper. It's really, really nice. This is a study that was done at Yale, and what they did was they looked at 450 patients. All of these patients were discharged with a diagnosis of acute ischemic stroke. And they went back retrospectively and said, what was the diagnosis, when was it done? When they first came to the emergency department, was it diagnosed or was it missed? And what they found was that 22% of these 450 patients were missed diagnoses in their first visit, which is a problem. 30% of these patients were posterior strokes and 70% were anterior, which is consistent with what we see. And they were missed diagnoses, not only by emergency medicine, but by neurology. So 30% of these missed diagnoses had neurology involvement. And if it was posterior stroke, it was three times as likely to be missed. That makes sense, doesn't it? These people come in with nausea, vomiting. I just ate a turkey sandwich with two-week-old turkey. It's, it, we go down that pathway. That's what they give us when they come in the door, and it's very tempting because it's difficult to figure out. And how many people do we see coming in with flu-like illness, weak, nausea, dizzy, throwing up? Putting that patient, you know, putting it in the back of our mind, I have to think about posterior stroke, I think we'll catch more of these patients. And in our case, fortunately, the second team that picked this patient up said, something's wrong here, let's keep him. And when he developed his, his symptoms, he was in the department, and it was easy to get him through the system. You might be thinking, what, what just happened here? He came in with symptoms, and then he was okay, and then he had worse symptoms, and then we found a stroke. What actually happened? Well, one of the wrinkles that I didn't tell you about yet is that when radiology looked at that CT at 4 in the morning when he had his new symptoms, and remember they were looking at that basilar artery hyperdensity, he looked back at the CTA that was done at midnight and realized something very terrifying. As you can see here, there's the left vertebral artery, and look at the right. It's a dissection. And the radiologist looked at it and just, his heart sank. I know that because I talked with him for a long time. Because he missed a vertebral artery dissection. So when this kid first came in, he had a dissection, and we missed it. Radiology, neurology, emergency medicine all looked at this image and missed it. So the patient came up to me the next, the, the, the morning after angio. And I had this report, so emergency medicine and stroke attendings both told me, this is what happened, and you should know that we missed the, art the uh, vertebral artery dissection. I said, okay, 
um, do the parents know that? And they said, no, we haven't had a chance to discuss that with them. So I said, yes, Alan. So there's no, no trauma involved No trauma, no. Good question, and, and as, we, as we really dug deeper into the story, this guy does CrossFit. I don't know if anybody here does CrossFit. See me afterwards. Um, and he had been on a roller coaster a few days before. And, you know, eventually when we sp spoke to the parents, they said, well, why did he have a dissection? And all we could really say was, well, there's a couple of smoking guns, there's the CrossFit, there's the roller coaster, but there's no proof that either one of those caused it, and these things can happen spontaneously. Yeah. And so um, I said, we really need to talk with the family about this. So they came upstairs, patient was there, his exam was great, he looked great, I was really happy, parents were ecstatic, um, and I tucked them in, and they had some questions, and I said, listen, I'm going to get radiology to come up and talk with us about all the imaging. The reason I didn't answer their question directly is because this is radiology's um, miss, and I want them to have the opportunity to address it with the family. So what I did as the neurointensivist is I called our disclosure coach. In our hospital, we have a disclosure coach for every department. So when we have to talk with families or patients about an error or a miss, we, we talk with them and they coach us on how to talk with the family as well as how to document it in the chart. And our neuro ICU disclosure coach helped me find radiology's disclosure coach and the radiologist, so we talked. We talked for a long time. And he came up the next morning and met with the family, with me, met with the parents and myself, and we went through all the imaging, we went through the whole case, answered a bunch of questions, and he said to the family at least three times, when I looked back at the study that was done at midnight, I realized that I had misread the CTA and I missed a vertebral artery dissection. Now, if that doesn't make you sweat a little bit to just think about saying that to a family member whose 23-year-old just had a basilar artery stroke, I don't know what will. And the family's response was, we are so glad that our son is here and that you guys are taking care of him, and we're just really happy that he's here. Thank you very much. And after that meeting, he and I looked at each other, and, and we, we talked afterwards, and he goes, what, what just happened? And I said, well, the literature says if you disclose your errors, then families treat you better, trust you more, and, and it works out. I guess it's true. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but that's, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. We talked a long time after that about it. He said, do you think they heard me? Do you think they got it? And I said, ah, I do. I was there. I heard it. You said it three times. Um, but, we, you know, we both were anticipating a not good response. So that worked out. Patient did well. I kept him in the ICU for a couple of days, keeping a close eye on him. And we eventually sent him to the floor, and he was discharged on aspirin. Now, with a vertebral artery dissection in the acute phase, we want to give thrombolysis because we want to prevent any clot from forming at that narrowing and throwing off emboli. If you don't have subarachnoid hemorrhage associated with the dissection, it's recommended to go ahead and give thrombolysis. Afterwards, it's about prevention because we still have a narrowed lumen in that vertebral artery. 
that can cause turbulence and, and it can be embolized. So it's a little dicey. Now, I'll tell you, there's no strong data, randomized perspective, good data, to say antiplatelet versus anticoagulation in these patients. So we go with antiplatelet, and I think most, most folks do go with antiplatelet. And um, he's had a couple of follow-ups, and he's doing really well. So that's a good ending to a very scary story. And the lessons that I take from it are, oh, this is, his, uh, this is his MRI that he got before he left, and he's got some small areas of stroke in the basal ganglia and the cerebellum, but his exam is really good, and he's fully functioning and doing well. And the lessons that I take from this are, number one, don't forget the posterior stroke. And these patients don't always come into the emergency department. They could be on the floor. They could be anywhere. Don't rely on the CAT scan. Yes, question. So had he not had a HIMSS exam? He did not. He did not. I find the HIMSS exam, is, it's very useful, but it's uh, not that popular. I'm teaching it a lot these days, but it's, it's not that much in use. And I think it should be more in use. Yeah. Um, and use the HIMSS exam. So um, that's the end of that story. I want to ask in the audience here, how many people are not from New England originally? I'm from Chicago. Nice. All right. Well, when I moved from Chicago to New England, I figured out that things are done a little bit differently here. <laughs> this Valentine's Day, instead of chocolates and roses, I got a shovel. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. <laughs> Because this is what we did Valentine's Day weekend. We got up on the roof to shovel the snow. Well, actually, Paul got the fun part, to go up on the roof and shovel the snow off. I'm looking kind of grumpy here because I got the part where I had to shovel it all up as it came off the roof. And at life insurance, actually what, what we do is we're both climbers. So Paul rigs up a system that starts at his truck and the rope goes up and over, and then it anchors over on the balcony on the other side, and he's got a Jumar, and he goes up, and he's, he's well protected. Although I still don't like him to do this when I'm not home. So, but the other thing we did is uh, we went skiing, and this is one of the best parts of New England. If you have not seen this or been part of dog sledding or ski drawing with huskies, I would encourage you to find a place and do it because it's one of the greatest things to see these dogs running through the woods. So, there's that. Let's talk about our next case. I'm going to have to take you back in history a little bit. Some of you in the audience may not have been born how far, how far back we're going to go, because we're going back to 1995. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the year of the first NANDS stroke study, TPA for acute ischemic stroke. I'm not going to go into the details of this, but suffice it to say, I think you all know that this started a huge barrage of controversy that has lasted over the years, and happily we're not going to go into that. But in 2004, we got some new devices. We got the Mercy, the Mercy Retriever for, for clot, for stroke. And what it does is the catheter goes beyond the clot, deploys this wire, which pulls back, and then just pulls the clot right out of the artery. 2007, 
we got the penumbra, which is kind of like the vacuum cleaner for stroke. It's a catheter that goes up to the clot, and this thing here breaks up the clot and suctions it out. That's 2007 technology. These had been in use. We were using them. Patients came in with a stroke. We gave them TPA. It didn't work. And we said, you know, we've got these tools. We can go in and grab that clot and bring it out. And patients who were not risk-averse, who wanted TPA, they all wanted this. And we tried to study it in general. Tried to study it, but it's hard to study something. When you said to the patient, you've had a stroke, there's a clot in your brain, we're going to use TPA, oh, it didn't work, well, now can we randomize you into a study that says we'll either use these tools or not? And patients say, of course. And then when you randomize to the control arm, they say, count me out, I want the retrieval, right? So that was really difficult to study. And for other reasons, it was difficult to study. So in 2013, after we'd already been using it and seeing good outcomes, this happened. New England Journal, three studies in the same journal, IMS3, Synthesis, and MRSQ, all said clot retrieval doesn't improve outcomes. This is a problem. I can remember sitting in stroke conference the day that, that these were released, and we had neurosurgery, neurology, emergency medicine, and, and people were upset and nervous because we've been using this, and it works. We see it with our own eyes. It works. But if we can't prove that outcomes are better, it's not going to become FDA approved, and insurance is not going to cover it, so it's going to go away for all practical purposes. So people were anxious. Fortunately, newer trials had been ongoing at that time because we had newer tools. We had stent retrievers. This is the Trevo and the Solitaire. And these work differently. A microwire goes right through the clot, and when it's through, it deploys the stent. When the stent is deployed, the clot is pulled away from the walls of the artery, and you get reperfusion right at that time. And then they pull the clot out. So that made it better. It's a better tool because it gets you reperfusion more quickly. This was, this was developed around 2012, and we started using it. And so we started seeing some really good results. And in 2015, the world changed for neurology and for stroke. Because Mr. Clean was a study that was using stent retrievers, and halfway through they opened their books, and they looked at the data and they said, we can't continue this trial because the interventional arm is doing so much better than the control arm, it'll never catch up. So they stopped their trial. When they did that, all the rest of these guys did. So now you've got six trials stopping their investigation halfway through because the treatment is so much better than control. This changed the world of stroke. Now we have good evidence that clot retrieval works and improves outcomes. How did they do that? Was it just the stent retriever that was so much better? No, there was a couple of other reasons. One of the other reasons is that when you have a clot, like this one in the left MCA, what you have is a necrotic core. That's dead tissue. It's not going to get any better. It's not going to get any worse. You also have penumbra. This is the area around the necrotic core, which is injured but not dead yet. 
And there's also benign oligemia mixed in there. The penumbra, if we don't do anything, will tend to get recruited to the necrotic core. And the natural history of a stroke patient is that they get worse over time if we don't do anything. If we revascularize and pull this clot out, now we're reperfusing the penumbra and we're salvaging it, or much of it. So then patients will improve. So the question is, if you've got a necrotic core that's small and a penumbra that's large, revascularization has more benefit than risk. But if your core is large, now you've got a risk of reperfusion hemorrhage. So to hit the sweet spot, you want to be looking for the patient who has a small core and a large penumbra. And this is one of the things that they used in Mr. Clean and the other studies. They targeted select patients. And the other thing they did was they really focused on getting patients to the angio suite quickly. These patients got TPA, and while the TPA is running, they took them to the angio suite, and they're doing reperfusion. They're, they're revascularizing as the TPA is running. So those three things together made these trials successful. And there's a couple of tools they use. This is called the aspect score. It's a non-contrast CT where you divide the brain into 10 different geographic zones. And radiology will look at this, and if there's any abnormality in any one of those zones, you start with 10 points and you take a point away for each area that has an abnormality. And that abnormality can be one of those hyperdensities like we saw. It can be loss of gray-white differentiation. It can be true stroke. So the more abnormalities you see, the lower your score is, the bigger your stroke is. And the thinking is, if it's bigger, then you've got a risk of reperfusion hemorrhage. The other score, scoring system they used is really kind of cool. It's um, MRI with diffusion and perfusion-weighted imaging. So this is one patient on the top panel. And if you can see, there's a very small pink area here. That's a DWI. That's the necrotic core. And over here is perfusion-weighted MRI, and that's the penumbra, this green part. You can see that the core is much smaller than the penumbra. That's the patient we want. There's a mismatch there. Small, small core, large penumbra. This is the patient you want to reperfuse. This patient down here, you can see that the core is really the same size as the penumbra. So a larger core, larger risk of reperfusion hemorrhage, and not as much penumbra to salvage. So these are the tools that they use to make those studies successful. And it was a game changer. The, um, the recommendations from the societies changed to say that if you get a patient with ischemic stroke, large vessel occlusion in the anterior, because this is what they study was anterior strokes, and that's what, that what was easy to access as well. If you get those patients, you should, you should consider endovascular treatment. So now let's talk about my second case. This is... Um, this was in 2013, and this time I'm in the emergency department. This little girl woke up 2.30 in the morning, crying, trying to climb out of her crib, and her father got up to take care of her. And as he was, you know, getting her some water and changing her, putting her back in her crib, he's wondering, where's my wife? 
she's usually the one to get up for this, and I'm really surprised that she's not up yet. And he took care of the baby, went back to bed, and noticed his wife was not only not helping him, but she had vomited, and we tried to wake her up. He noticed that she couldn't move her entire left side. So he's hemiplegic. He called EMS, and EMS brought her to the emergency department. Now, this is a woman who's otherwise healthy, 30 years old, new baby, not new, she's two and a half years old or so, and has no reason to have a stroke. And we have to talk about EMS when we talk about stroke, because they're part of the whole continuum of care. The uh, target stroke, um, the, the uh, study that they did looking at how can we get people from the door to TPA more quickly? This was a registry that included three out of four hospitals across the country, and their goal was to get people from door to TPA in less than 60 minutes. They did. They improved time, they improved outcome, they decreased length of stay, and they, and they decreased, more, most importantly, I think, is they decreased the rate of symptomatic intracerebral inter hemorrhage, which is, which is really good. But a big part of the, the bundle of things that helped us do this is EMS, advanced notification, a rapid protocol, and a single call activation system. So when our EMS folks have a patient with stroke, they're calling and saying, we've got a stroke alert. We are ready. We're waiting in the resuscitation room, and we've already alerted everybody I told you about, from the neurology resident to the fellow to the neurosurgical interventional attending. That's the system that was initiated here. And this woman came to the emergency department. We were ready and waiting. We got a CAT scan. Her stroke scale was about 15, as I recall. And we saw there was no bleed. But you can see here, she's got this hyperdensity in the left MCA. Sometimes you see that, sometimes you don't. We saw it. We confirmed with the CTA that she has a cutoff. So remember, this is 2013, and she is what we call a wake-up stroke. Her last time seen normal was 8 o'clock when they went to bed. So she's out of the window. We can't give her TPA. But I had already talked with our stroke attending, and this time the stroke attending was actually one, one of our emergency physicians who splits his time between EM and stroke, where I split my time between EM and neurocritical care. And we decided we're going to send her to MRI. And the stroke interventionalist was on his way in. So when we went to MRI, we saw with the diffusion-weighted imaging that she already had areas of stroke. Not surprising. But in the flare imaging, absolutely normal. What this means is that she likely had her stroke in, in the past three or four hours. Because we know that flare imaging takes about three or four hours to show up with areas of stroke. So that was helpful. This is another example of how that works. In this patient, this is one and a half hours out from a stroke. You can see DWI clears day, and there's nothing on flare. This is somebody who was six hours out. So you see DWI, but you also see associated flare. So we know that this patient has had a stroke greater than roughly three to four hours. And then this is another one. It's about. Um, I think this was about two and a half hours out, so you've got DWI and maybe a hint of some changes here. So that's how we use that imaging 
which is really helpful. In, in uh, Boston, <coughs> Lee Schwamm et al. did this study, which used that same technology. They looked at DWI and flare, and anybody who's had a wake-up stroke where their last time seen normal was four and a half hours to 24 hours. And based on that technology that I just described, they gave TPA to patients who had no uh, evidence of stroke on flare. And they found improved outcome, it was safe, it was feasible, they had really good results. This is where we're going now with, with literature and with investigations for strokes, is we're looking at wake-up strokes and using our advanced imaging. Question? What was the frequency of hemorrhage in these patients? Um, I'm... I'm Recalling from memory, but it was, I want to say 2.5%. It was not higher than the normal. Yeah. These are a bunch of studies that are going on now. The Wake Up, ECAS 4, and Extend are all looking at TPA in wake up strokes. The Eyewitness is doing the same thing that I just described with the MR Witness, but trying to use CT perfusion instead of MRI, which will make it much more accessible for folks who don't have easy access to MRI. And then Dawn and Positive are looking at thrombectomy for wake-up strokes. So keep your eyes open because this is, this is going to be the next wave of uh, using technology to treat stroke patients. So our girl went to endovascular, went to angio suite, and it was 2013. Our neurosurgeon used a penumbra, pulled the clot out, and she walked out of the hospital with no deficits. And this is in a 30-year-old woman who could have had some severe deficits with a young child, and, and that's a good story. That's a good story. But this doesn't come without, you know, all this technology and these advances doesn't come without some additional questions that are popping up. And here's one of them. This is where we live in Maine, where we have our house. These are the three tertiary care centers in Maine. The only one that has endovascular capability is Portland. So if you live here, if I have my stroke at home, EMS is going to come and get me and take me 20 minutes down the road to a hospital that doesn't have neurology, has emergency medicine, it doesn't have MRI after 5 o'clock, and they may see that I have a stroke and they may or may not give TPA, and then they'll send me, classically they send me to Lewiston. And then I'll get to Lewiston and maybe do some imaging, and they'll say, huh, this is a candidate for endovascular. Let's send her to Portland. And you can see how much time that can take, right? The question is, should we be sending patients with large vessel occlusions in the anterior, um, in the anterior brain directly to a center that can do endovascular therapy? Some of you are nodding yes, but there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, how is EMS going to know large vessel occlusion or not? Secondly, you're going to be sending a lot of patients to Portland that they don't want, right? And, and our stroke alerts, for every 100 strokes that we call as a stroke alert, 50 of them are true strokes. And that's pretty much the national average. That's not bad. But that's 50 more patients that these guys probably don't want to see, right? So that's one problem. The other problem is EMS trying to figure out who goes and who doesn't. Now, the tool that we have, this is our tool from Connecticut, and they look at four things. Facial droop, grip strength, arm strength, and speech. 
Any one of those in the setting of a normal blood glucose is a stroke alert. They call it in, we're ready, we do the whole nine yards. But that's not enough to tell you LVO versus a smaller stroke. If it's a distal stroke, we don't know the difference. There are new tools being looked at. The LA Motor Scale has eight criteria. The South Carolina Race Scale has many more criteria. The goal of these tools is to help EMS to stratify large vessel occlusion anterior versus everybody else. So everybody else is still a stroke, but they don't necessarily need to be going right to the endovascular center. So that's something that we're looking at. And the other question is this. Does everybody who goes to endovascular need to get TPA? So it, with cardiology, we're not doing that anymore. Somebody's going to go get PCI. They don't get TPA unless they're greater than 90 minutes out, right? But with stroke, we're still giving TPA and then going to endovascular. Now, there's two schools of thought. One school of thought says, give the TPA. And this is most of the neurosurgeons that I've spoken with say, give the TPA. Number one, it helps soften up the clot, makes it easier to get out. Number two, there are cases where we can't get to the clot. Maybe you've got tortuous anatomy. Maybe you've got stenosis or some other reason. And if we discover once we get in there that we can't get to it, I'm going to wish TPA was on board to give some kind of help. And number three is if it's a distal clot and we can't get to it with our endovascular therapy, I'm going to wish that TPA was on board. The folks who argue against it say don't give TPA because there is a risk of hemorrhage. And we can avoid that whole risk. Right now, the prevailing thought is give the TPA. But there are a couple of studies ongoing that are looking at this. And I think it's another one of those questions that has developed because we've got these advanced tools. So at the end of the day, that was a good case. And what we learned from this is the integrated approach really does improve outcomes. When that woman came in, if I was at a center that didn't have MRI or didn't have neurosurgery or you know, didn't have this integrated team that I do have, it would have taken her a lot longer to get to a place that can do that. And I don't know what her outcome would have been because as time goes by, that stroke kills tissue, right? And the other message is watch the data for wake-up strokes. We're really moving forward with our technology and our advanced imaging. And the final message is, this is a new study that, that came out this year. Now, Derringer et al. in 2001 showed us that a dedicated neurocritical care team improves outcomes, improves length of stay, improves outcome, and, and, and it's better. And that makes sense. Because when you have neurointensivists paying attention to the neuro issues, and it's not just the neurointensivist, it's dedication to the nursing and the ancillary care, following nutrition, glucose, fluid, um, getting people off the ventilators, everything put together improves outcomes. And this is just the recent, the most recent study I could find that corroborates that data. Decreased length of stay, improved outcome from dedicating a neurocritical care team to taking care of these patients. So that's all I have, and I'm happy to take questions. Um, and other than that, yes, Ellen. Well, it is 
it's kind of interesting, and I agree that neurochemical care unit comes through all spectra of, of neurologic ailments, both traumatic and non-traumatic. But yet, the, the evidence base, for, I mean, you gave a nice review of evidence base for Stephen stroke, but for hemorrhagic stroke and other disorders, there aren't a lot of evidence-based treatments, yet having a neurointensivist and a neurounit does make a difference. So it's kind of interesting that even though we don't have evidence-based treatments for most of the disorders, actually having a dedicated unit improves that. Yeah, and, and, and they are showing this with TBI and with, with all neurocritically ill patients. Hemorrhage, yeah. hemorrhage. True. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yes? So you use pain as a uh, teaching point. And, of course, everything flows already in Portland from all over me populated and so forth. So the question you were sort of framing in that context, how do you decide how to handle the people that are in the right? Yes. Okay, so that's one point. But most of the people don't live in a place like Maine, right? So what's the rules? So what's the rules? I mean, we sort of do. But, uh, but, but in, in more densely populated places where the uh, but, you know, they still don't have access to MRIs. What's going to be the public health delivery to, to, to really sort this out? It's a good question, and, and I'm close friends with the medical director for Boston MedFlight, and he and I just had emails about this. And and because um, I, I actually just wrote an article about it, and he read it, and he said, this is really interesting. It was in Boston. We're fighting this. And, and he's saying in Boston... Every hospital is fighting for every single patient. And the smaller hospitals that don't have MRI neurovascular capabilities are saying, well, you guys are just trying to get our patients. And um, they're having that fight, where in the rural areas, the fight is we need to have a, a, a good system to take care of these patients. Um, I think it's developing, and it's going to develop, and it has to involve EMS to help figure this out. Um, but it, it's... So, if, if I may follow sure, up, so yeah. if you look at Kaiser, which thinks about these issues a lot, how are they working? How are they doing I don't know exactly how Kaiser is addressing this right now. Um, I, I do think that what they do is they cohort their patients. They, they, they have centers of excellence that they, you know, whether it's trauma or cardiac or whatever it is. So I can't help but think that they're going to send their stroke patients to a dedicated center. I mean, when I have my stroke, send me to Portland. Or when you guys get your, uh, your center built up, bring me here. Because that's where I want to be. I want to have the best chance at uh, salvaging that penumbra. Alan. So the, the dawn trial may make this a little easier if those results hold. That was 24 hour using the true mm -hmm. So that might be the decision a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. Yes? I'm just wondering if you have a sense, as you said, of kind of all comers that came, 50% actually had strokes. Yes. So of all comers that came, how many would you say ended up meeting, or in your center, ended up meeting the criteria through the MRI, the feeding, the feeding rating, and who actually gets proper retrieval? You know, thinking about this issue of world places deciding who they're going to send where, 
I'm just curious what that. Yeah. Anecdotally, I can say that of the 50% of patients who are true strokes, um, roughly, I want to say, this is my own anecdotal data, uh, uh, 60% qualify for retrieval. And, um, but the other, the other point I want to make with that is it sounds kind of bad that out of 100 patients, only 50 of them had strokes. But we got a lot of practice on those 50 patients who didn't have strokes. And the reason that we can take such good care efficiently, quickly, and, and accurately of the patients who are really sick is because we've done this a bunch of times. We get about 1,000 a year, 1,000 uh, stroke alerts a year. And I think it's really important in an integrated system to have the practice and go through the, you know, the, the systems because I'll tell you, when we started this, we were working out a lot of kinks. It wasn't smooth sailing in the beginning. And we learned a lot along the way. And what we learned, we implemented improvements. Yeah. What if the community hospitals one hour outside of Yale do don't have MRI after five, don't have neurology 24-7. Is there a rapid CTCPA, CTA, or is there, I guess, what's the integration in your system and your yeah. Um, what we do is they do have CT and NCTA capabilities, and we also have a telestroke system where we dial in, we see the patient, and we help them to give TPA. Once they give TPA, it's called drip and ship, so they, they give TPA and they send them to us. And we're working... To, to work on the best way to get them to us. Because if it's time sensitive, we'll fly them. Meaning, if it's, it, it's clearly time sensitive if they're going to endovascular, but with our um, critical care air service, we have to figure out, is it gonna be faster to send them by ground or faster to get us there and bring them? Because we want to get them as quickly as possible. And some of our outliers are far enough out that it does make sense to fly them instead of going by ground. Right. It is 9 o'clock. I'm sorry. Um, I want to, uh, again, thank you for coming. It was really a great you. presentation. I really enjoyed it. Thank if you have you. other questions, we'll be here.